0: Disability. Disabled Welcome to the very first Talking Bull podcast. I am your host, Dave, aka the Sitting Bull Walsh. And for the first show, I thought I would bring you none other than a legend. This man has been Britain's strongest disabled man. He has been on stage bodybuilding with Phil Heath. He now plays professional amputee football for West Bromwich Albion. Not only that, Mark was also a sergeant in the Grenadier Guards. I feel very honoured to present to you Mark Smith. How are you doing, Mark? Hello,
1: mate. Are, are we, are we getting that round of applause?
0: No? <laughs> no, Mark, th- thanks, for, thanks for coming on. I've known Mark for quite a few years through uh, Strongman, so Disabled Strongman. Mark actually uh, was an inspiration of mine to get into Disabled Strongman. Um, Don't tell him that because I don't think he knows, but it was back in 2017. Um, I ended up finding him on Facebook or Instagram, which was, was an inspiration to me straight away, which got me back into the sport I loved. Mark, for, for our listeners who don't know who you are, A, where have you been all this time? And B, can you tell us a bit about your life before 2011?
1: Yeah, yeah, before.
0: Start way back. Start, uh, you know, what did you like to do um, as a kid? I know you're very big at, like, football and, and things like that. So, yeah, let's let's go all the way back when, when you came out of the womb, plus maybe 16 years.
1: <laughs> how much detail do you want me to go into
0: <laughs> i mean i'm talking first girlfriends here go. No, yeah. no, like, when, when, when you left <laughs> when you left school you joined the army right yeah yeah let's 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 go from there when you when you decided to join the army what, what made you join the army for a start
1: um to to be fair mate like i had a bit of a rough time at school to be honest um and, yeah, sort of, in a way, the army provided, like, an escape route. Um, yeah. You, know, you can have a you can have a fresh start. I would go miles away from home where no one would know me. Um, no one would have any sort of opinions of me based on sort of what school was like and stuff and just start afresh. Um, and I think the thing that I liked is, you know, the army puts a roof over your head, food on the table money in your bank account so I had all of the things that gave me the perfect opportunity to sort of move away from Milton Keynes at that time because that was I just wanted to be as far away from there as possible to be honest but then the job itself also like really appealed to me like the thought of sort of going around the world um being active like I only I only really sort of enjoyed sort of PE at school yeah uh, yeah so, yeah anything physical I'd I'd played football from the age of seven sort of all the way up to sort of joining the army, so I could continue sort of playing football in the army and stuff and
0: that's what that's what you you find with a lot of soldiers or ex-soldiers you know it's very much a rocky Balboa story you can't sing or you can't dance so join join the forces and the forces sort kind of sort you out like not not just with pay and not just with travel they they sort you out as a human being so they make you into what I believe is, is a better human being than you were before you joined. So obviously joining at, at 16. Uh,
1: so I ended up joining at 18 in 2003. 18. Yeah, okay,
0: um, so from from 2003 and 2011 before Canada, what yeah. operations have you been to? Because I know you've, you've been to some shitty places, but places that are, are an experience for, uh, in the forces, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're not, they're not the places that you you wouldn't sort of sit and look through the Thomas Cook catalogue and yeah. think. <laughs> there's no
0: TripAdvisor reviews on them. No, no.
1: <laughs> like I said, like, I I wanted to sort of go to those places and and have that experience and do as much as I could. So my first my first operational tour, I was 19 and I went to Bosnia for six months, which was was quite a good sort of first tour really because it. It wasn't sort of kinetic or anything like that. There was no rounds being fired, but it it was an experience. It was being away from home for a long time. Mm. I spent Christmas and New Year away, which was an experience in itself. I did different sort of operations. We were doing a lot of work to stop sort of human trafficking, drug trafficking, you know, wow. sort of for weapons caches and stuff like that. So as a young 19-year-old sort of on my first tour, like I loved it and I was around a lot of blokes who had done sort of numerous Northern Ireland tours. So I liked being around older blokes, sort of. Yeah, um,
0: well, they, they were providing you with, I guess, the uh, mentorship that you needed to succeed in, in the army. And you, you did succeed in the army because you, you got to rank of Sergeant. How did it feel to get to Sergeant?
1: To be honest, like my first five years or so, I turned down a couple of promotions to Lance Corporal. My sort of feeling on it at the time was I wasn't, after Iraq, uh, which had come after Bosnia, I was offered the chance to go on my Lance Corporal's course. And I turned it down because there were still lads in the rifle company that I I don't think I was experienced enough. Although I had two tours under my belt, I don't think I was experienced enough to lead them. I still looked up to them, and I, I didn't okay. I didn't feel in a position to lead those blokes. I thought, you know, I I can still learn from them, and I and I to be fair, I, I like to drink and stuff, so I, <laughs> my my sort of my life in camp, I was <laughs> out quite a bit, so I probably wasn't the ideal role model at that time. But then, yeah, obviously, you sort of you get married, you start a family, and you you want more money. I've I've got a responsibility and an opportunity to a better yeah. income. and then obviously once I'd got things like Afghanistan under my belt as well, then you do feel like you've you've got that experience to to lead men, and that now you're in a position where those lads can learn from you. So I I always sort of wanted to pride myself on the fact that if and when I picked up promotions, they were not It yeah. wasn't from sucking up to people or, and stuff like that. Like everything I've sort of done and and since the army Mm. i wanted it to be through merit so that those that you work alongside also look at you as you know worthy of of that rank and responsibility Um, yeah and like you say
0: you could you could tell now as well like with all the achievements you've got with you know, since leaving the army with, with sports and sponsorships and everything is from watching from the outside. You, you can definitely tell you, you graft for it and everything you get you've earned. And it must've been the same in the arm, your army career. And for for you to say, I'm ready, that's, that's when you know you're ready. So you spent that time in the army. Do you think if it wasn't for your accident, you would have spent your whole working life in the army your your full 22 years yeah Yeah. so so the army at that point meant everything to you family aside that your army the army was your life
2: yeah
1: I I loved it mate I loved the simplicity the responsibility that you had of being away like you know Afghanistan in particular I loved you know you treated like grown-up men like it's just quite in between sort of patrols and operations and stuff it's quite a laid back
0: yeah thing. it's hard to explain to people that when when they ask you what was your you know i i only did one tour of iraq but when they ask you what was it like you're like it was all right it's because because yeah. because the guys you're with are all right and because of the downtime you get you can just chill out or dick about or do do guys stuff whatever and it's it's all right it's It's an experience you'll you'll hold with you forever. And uh, civilians or or people who haven't been on operations will never get to know how that all right is. It's like a bloke trying to become pregnant. You you don't know (laughs) what it's going to feel like. You never know. You can say you can do it, but can you? (laughs) In 2011, let's go back to Canada. Take us through, why were you in Canada? Because it wasn't an operation, was it?
1: no no so uh we were beginning our pre-deployment training ready to go out the following year back to afghan um and they thought
0: let's go to canada where there's snow."
1: (laughs) yeah yeah we went to kenya in the middle of the heat for a winter tour and we were going to go to canada (laughs) in the cold for a summer tour so yeah Uh, it made a lot of sense (laughs) (laughs) i i even enjoyed not so much the actual day that i was injured but the weeks leading up to it, I I felt like I was now in the role and the rank to have an influence on people and where my ideas were implemented or, you know, listened to. Yeah. So I, I, I sort of thrived out there. I quite enjoyed the I, – I liked the leadership. And, you know, I, I came back from Breckham with lots of ideas and lots of things I'd learned that I wanted to pass on to the blokes. And watching those come off. It was an enjoyable six weeks in terms of our exercise, our pre-deployment. Yeah, obviously those of us that were sort of lance-arts and above who had range qualifications and, and that were expected to stay behind for another six weeks mm. to oversee the live firing ranges of the next regiment.
0: So, so you essentially helped out another, you know, if you're looking at it from a civilian point of view, you essentially helped out another company because you yeah. were qualified to, and you had the experience as, um, you know, Sergeant uh, in the Grenadier Guards would have over whoever came in next. So, yeah. so you are, you are helping out, but obviously leading still as well. Tell us about the day and then, you know, as, as much as you're comfortable going through. Right?
1: That's fine, mate. It's, it's, I mean, I, I don't know why, like, I always had a, a a sixth sense, like people have sort of spoken about it and, I had it in Afghanistan. Um, We were going out to set up an ambush at night, and in the orders, I was told I'd be point man for the patrol. And I had this horrible, horrible feeling, and and we ended up getting ambushed ourselves. And that very same feeling, I got the morning of this range, and it was an early start. The days leading up to it, they'd done live firing ranges as individuals, going down as pairs, fire teams, sections. So this particular day was going to be platoon attacks. So... So
0: even even though it's an exercise, it was still live firing, so the ranges were real, uh, obviously, because you got a shot. If, you know, yeah. if, it, if, <laughs> if it wasn't, then it'd be a shit story. But you know, the the, the ranges were real. Uh, you know, every everything was as if you were on operation, apart from the enemy. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: So obviously, it's just wooden wooden targets or metal pop up targets on the ranges. So all the rounds are going. Sort of down the range, and then yeah, this this particular range, it was an early start, Uh, so we get on the wagons to go out to the area. There was going to be three platoon attacks that day, and it was a slightly different role to what the Grenadier Guards were doing, as it was armoured infantry. And Mm. the six weeks prior, we'd been obviously dismounted, so everything on foot. So they were slightly different ranges, ran slightly differently, which it was just another learning curve in my eyes, Uh, and you sort of picked it up as you went along. But yeah, like I said, on, on the wagons on the way out there, I just had that same sick feeling. And I actually, with the time difference, I, I texted my wife sort of back home and I just said, oh, I got, got a bit of a sort of shit feeling about today. She's she still she still got the message, no. And then yeah, the, the first platoon went down and we followed in the vehicles. Uh, they, they dismounted at the back of Warrior um, armored personnel carriers, sort of debussed and, and went and cleared a bunker position. So that was our cue to to debus off of our wagons and follow them. Uh, they then advanced on to clearing a trench system, and as well as sort of overseeing the safety of the range, it was our responsibility to to test them, to test their sort of mm-hmm. casualty evacuation, their communication, their, their tactics, all of that sort of stuff. You're you're watching them as well as sort of overseeing the the safety aspect. So the the first platoon that went down I only went as far as the trench system because the section I was following. Uh, went firm as fire support so they they didn't go on to assault the compounds which was the next part of the platoon attack so you've got 40 odd blokes sort of all heading in one direction quite sort of spaced out and and I'd said after the first platoon attack I'd I'd sort of raised my concerns that it was all a bit disorientating to be fair being temporary staff myself being attached to lads who were out there for two years doing that um, I was missing certain bits of kit that ultimately would have helped a radio being the biggest thing um when you're looking at a platoon attack and all those blokes are spread out it was quite quick to become disorientated and, and lose mm. that sort of situational awareness so i'd i'd aired, aired that after the first platoon but essentially i was airing it to a much higher rank yeah so yeah there to was, kind of get, uh, on with it. get on with it yeah uh, so, yeah we'd stop for lunch and then the second platoon went down same thing again, clearing the bunker positions, clearing the trench system, except the section I'd followed that time were going on to be the lead assault section. So they they advanced beyond the trench system and were going on to clear the first compound. So the compounds, they weren't packed of mud and, and hay yeah. like they are in Afghanistan, they were just MDF walls. Uh, so they get shot to pieces for six weeks and replaced. Um, yeah,
0: that, that bulletproof MDM yeah yeah (laughs) it definitely
1: wasn't (laughs) um so the, the the six lads i'd followed stacked up outside to go in in their pairs to clear each room uh so i would have been going in with the last pair for the third room but then yeah when the first two lads went in obviously you're you i was sort of straining i i had that typical thing that you get as soon as live ammunition's fired where One of my ears is whistling, so it's hard enough to hear as it is. So you're you're straining, there's shouting going on. And then you hear the the gunshots in the first room. And then I just, I had my back to the wall and I just felt this hot, stinging sensation in my leg. And I've, I've grabbed my leg and as I've gone down, I've been hit again in my shoulder. And then there was just... It felt like forever, but it was confusion because obviously we'd been giving them sort of mm. casualties. Man down gets called, and this this sort of confusion as to whether or not it's a role play casualty. And yeah, um, <clears throat> the safety staff member that I'd gone over to that compound with came out, and yeah, went pretty pale pretty quick. Um, called so all,
0: all the soldiers that were there, they. They, they thought it might be pretend.
1: Yeah, or, basically. Or,
0: and there was uh, only this one this one guy you went out with that knew, actually, this, you know, <laughs> Mark's not lying on the floor for, for shits and giggles. Yeah. Yeah. W- what happened then?
1: Uh, so the, the range got stopped straight away. He, if I remember rightly, went into shock and the other safety staff lads came over. The the biggest thing and the thing that sort of made it more of a life threatening sort of situation is the, the lads who we'd been taking down the range. They hadn't been out to Afghanistan before. So there were certain things in the Grenadiers that we did just as standard um, carrying morphine, carrying tourniquets, carrying first field dressings. And these lads didn't have any of that stuff with them. Um, the The safety staff, were rallying around trying to get bits of med kit for me basically um so i had i had two tourniquets applied on the leg above and below the exit wound because they would hit my hit my artery so i it was yeah the blood was sort of gushing out um and it was it was covering the the compound wall the the lad had gone to one of the lads had gone to apply pressure um and the palm of his hand went inside inside the exit wound so his hand was inside <laughs> my leg
0: what just like playing with the bone and that
1: yeah yeah just, and uh, they were they were they were conscious of not letting me see it but I could <laughs> <see it. And
0: laughs> I can't see it but I can feel someone down there flicking my bone can you can you stop pretty much
1: the, the thing that I was aware of just how close it was to certain things that are quite precious to me <laughs> um, <laughs> so one of the lads basically cut them they'd cut my trousers and stuff so I was sort of Stark bullock naked from the waist. <laughs> Cut them to reassure me they were fine, so I <laughs> relaxed them. And then one of the tourniquets went on, and he'd caught my ball bag in the Ooh. tourniquet,
0: and I like <laughs> getting
1: shot, like <laughs> screaming.
0: It's amazing the pain that you must have been in from the from the you know the shot. But then <laughs> you're like, get off my balls, get off my balls, pretty <laughs> yeah, yeah. much.
1: That was horrific, mate. Like, uh, to be oh, fair, yeah. You
0: can imagine how, how, how hard a tourniquet has to go on. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. It, I think if he'd have cupped them to show me and they were obliterated, I'd have just said, you know, I'm just <laughs> going to race the next couple of minutes, let me go. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, and then
2: wow.
1: one of the lads had seen my artery sort of flapping about and, and took the decision to try and clamp it off. Um, so i'd used like a, a paper clip basically that he'd had on him to, to clamp off my artery and that that action there is what kept me alive oh wow uh, okay because so the drills because of,
0: the... of one soldier yeah who just fought a little bit outside the box i guess what what yeah. a soldier should should do in those situations so you've yeah. saved your life
2: yeah yeah oh, had wow, you, I had got goosebumps just saying that
1: and then yeah, as I was laying there, obviously they kept my leg elevated. I had I had no morphine, nothing, like that, no pain relief. And then I, I kept complaining like my shoulder was really hot. um And they they were like, yeah yeah, you know you're, you're fine. And I said no no, I said, it's really really burning. And so they they cut my shirt open and I like, oh, fucking know he's been shot in the shoulder as well. Uh, this guy keeps
0: looked, giving us problems.
1: Yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was like yeah, they, they, it definitely wasn't role play at that point. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I saw that one, but to be fair, that was quite a clean entry and exit. Oh, okay. um, so they, they just packed it with sort of hemorrhage control. And yeah. and then it was just a catalogue of things after that, like my lung had collapsed. So they were sort of, I had a drain going into my lung to keep pumping the pumping the lung. The, so, you know, I had no morphine, they kept the leg elevated. And as much as I knew they were doing the right thing, I was getting annoyed because I could feel the pins and needles. So I knew the longer it was, these tourniquets were on, the less chance I had of keeping a leg. Yeah. Um, and then the confusion with uh, the heli coming out to airlift me to hospital, uh, they sent uh, they sent a Lynx, which isn't a sort of suitable helicopter. Yeah. For getting on. So eventually within 90 minutes, I, I was on my way to hospital. 90? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's and i think that played a huge part in me losing the leg had had this happened in afghanistan and you've got you know the platinum 10 minutes the golden hour yeah possibly
0: plus everybody having the kit that ne- you know you needed
1: yeah, yeah. gosh I'd that's the leg if it happened in afghanistan
0: yeah um, yeah so it, it took uh, around 9 well not 90 minutes to to get you in the helicopter or was that to get to hospital
1: uh onto the heli
0: onto the heli and then and then where where did you go from from there
1: uh so the first thing i did was pass away (laughs) so i'd i'd wait 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 Um,
0: (laughs) i I, (laughs) I knew this story but i didn't know it was this soon (laughs) yeah so so you actually died yeah for for 5 minutes yeah so that's that's just so hard to get your head around like not you know for for you it must be a, a, a lot more but for for anybody just to to hear your story and to hear that you know you you were dead you were gone you you were yeah. you were in another place for five minutes no no heart pumping no brain nothing you you that that was absolutely crazy and you know what happened as as you were dead uh, what what were the the paramedics doing or uh,
1: so I had, I think I had one medic on the back of the heli with me. Um
0: trained medic or an actual medic or you know because in the army you have uh, for people who don't know you have medics who are actual medics like they're they're trained paramedics pretty much or you have medics in your section who just like a bit of first aid (laughs) so so you 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 had a a trained trained trained, medic
1: trained medic with me and I think it was defibrillators that that brought me back the, the biggest mistake I made I think was on the ground, I was—I had a really, really just relaxed. Uh, there was a moment where all the pain stopped, and I—I I thought I'd been given sort of pain relief, but I, I hadn't. I, I just had this this moment where everything felt really warm and relaxed. So I was desperately trying to fight it because I thought if I embrace this, I'm I'm gone. Whereas once I got onto the heli, I thought I'm all right now. Like I'll I'll be fine now. I'm on my way to hospital, and I think that's where I. I did embrace it and that's obviously what, you know, what led to me flatlining. Um, but yeah, thankfully I was I was brought back and then um, from what I've been told in the, the following couple of days, my injuries were too severe for Medicine Hat Hospital at the time. So I was then sedated and taken on to Calgary. Okay. So all in all, from start to finish, by the time I was on the operating table, I'd had the tourniquets on for about six hours. Um, so yeah the leg the leg was essentially dead it was dead
0: Um, and it was it had to come off I guess
1: yeah and all of this sort of while this is going on sort of back home my wife obviously has a knock at the door thinks obviously straight away that I'm I'm gone Um, where you were (laughs) yeah yeah and and she was within I think within four hours was on a flight from Heathrow to Calgary um And no one from the regiment would sort of say whether I was alive or not. And the reason, as we found out from the Padre once once she'd got there, was that she was basically being flown out to turn off my life support. Um,
0: she didn't know this?
1: No, no. Once once they they didn't want to tell her what state I was in because they believed by the time she got to Canada, I'd have already passed away.
0: So did the army fly um, your your wife out? Yeah. And yeah. that was the, the 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 sole reason was to turn your life support off.
1: Yeah, basically, um, because it was sort of a, a civilian hospital, and it's all sort of privatised and stuff over there. Yeah, they needed
0: yeah um, permission basically. Yeah. Um, okay. So so in this 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 time this this flight, your, your wife had you you were in another place. She she was probably panicking like like crazy but you also had a young son at this point right
1: yeah, yeah so
0: how old was your son
1: uh he'd have just been coming up to six months old six months And i'd seen him, I'd seen him maybe four or five times because i'd i'd been away in brecon for months when he was born then i had a, about three days at home and then i went to canada yeah so i'd only seen him a handful of times
0: did he come to canada as well
1: no, no, he's yeah. he stayed with my mother in law. He didn't he didn't have a passport. My wife was obviously frantically trying to sort out sort of childcare, yeah. travel costs, all of this sort of stuff. And but yeah, I'd I'd I think I'd sort of convinced her throughout Afghan that, you know, getting shot would be better than being blown up, basically. So she knew I'd been shot. She yeah. t- my leg and shoulder, which not thinking of the arteries and stuff or, yeah. You'll be all right. Whereas, yeah, obviously when she said she walked into the room, I've got all these drains hanging off me and I'm all swollen and, yeah, not in a good place. If
0: you if you think you get shot in the leg, you'd think of a leg wound. You wouldn't think of all the uh, wires hanging off you and, you know, things going into you. So what, what kept you what kept you going? Because you, you died and then you were like, I'm not ready to die. I'm 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 gonna continue living because I have to meet the sitting bull one day, and then <laughs> that's obviously what kept you going. But what actually kept you going after after you came back to life? Were you were you around? Like were, were you conscious? Were you do you remember?
1: Um, so it took two days before I sort of came round, and the whole time I was on the ground, sort of waiting to be airlifted. To be fair, I was just thinking of a little boy. We had we had already been married a few years by that point and we held off having starting a family until I'd got Afghan out of the way. I I didn't want to bring a child into the world and then something happened in Afghan. So we, we waited until Afghan was out of the way to start a family. I didn't, I didn't want anybody else bringing up my children, basically. Um, That was really keeping me going and all the way throughout sort of Canada. And then when I was sort of flown back to England, it was, sort of at, obviously at the time I only had the one boy, but it was like, I have to see him again. Yeah. Um, but um, this isn't, this isn't it. And I suppose I was just sort of laying there like full of regrets. Like there was so much more I still wanted to do. And and then obviously when, when I came off the, the life support and I was sort of told by, by a surgeon there, if we don't amputate your leg today, you're, you're not going to see the day out. Um, oh, wow. what was happening, the leg, the leg was giving me organ failure where it was dead. It, it was starting to sort of affect my organs and all I was sort of thinking of I'd, we'd, we'd had lads in in our company and our battalion uh, from Herrick six that had lost legs and, and stuff. And so I, that side of it didn't bother me so much because I I'd seen them walk and stuff again and do good things. And I thought, you know, I'll get one of them prosthetics. Like I'll be fine. Yeah. But, the things that were sort of going around in my head the whole time were just, I'll never play football again. That sort of brought a tear to my, I suppose, like the thought of I've never, and especially having a son, it was like dream sort of having a kickabout in the garden with him. I mean, that was a waste of time, really, because he's not really interested in football. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't the uh, but also, I knew from the lads who had lost their legs above the knee, it was near on impossible that I'd get to stay in the military. and Yeah until obviously you sort of get brought up to speed on pensions and everything like that worried. Cause it was like, what am I going to do? Like, you know, financially, yeah. like I'm a husband, I'm a dad, like, you know, we've still got a home. young man as well. Yeah. And it's like, what happens now? And yeah. yeah, sort of thinking that's if they take the leg above the knee, that's my army career over. Whereas I'd been pleading for them to take it below the knee because I was adamant if I kept the knee joint, maybe it was the drugs or whatever but i still believed i could go and carry on getting promoted and and sort of stay in and yeah no it it, it's gonna like obviously we can't promise it will be below the knee
0: the the surgeon went into the operation not knowing if it's going to be below or above and then essentially he 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 fucked you over by taking yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. no no he he obviously had to take it above.
1: He could have taken it below, and he he just didn't take a shine to me, mate. So, yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, so so obviously he took it above above the knee. Um, how long was it before you to get back to the UK?
1: Uh, so I think I was costing the MOD quite a bit of money. <laughs> um, so I, I think I was costing the money for every day that I was in intensive care in Calgary. So. Mm-hmm. On the 12th day, I was flown back to England. I'd gone back a few days before, uh, so I'd spent the last few days in intensive care there on my own, which, yeah, you have a lot of time in your own forts and stuff. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, I'd, I'd been flown back to the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham, which obviously is where all the lads from Afghanistan and Iraq mm. will be flown back to. So it's obviously got its own military ward. And as soon as I landed, I was blue lighted to hospital and then straight into theatre. Okay. Uh, and the reason being is that they thought <laughs> not only had I had my leg amputated, but there was the possibility that I was going to lose my genitals as well. Ah, uh, what a disaster. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to be fair, I think I'd have had do not resuscitate put on me if that's the case.
0: up, well, okay, check them. Nah, take me yeah. back.
1: <laughs>
2: I'm not going out like this. <laughs> <laughs> um when, when on, you were
0: when you were in Birmingham, Matthew, you had the, the operations. In, in the military ward, how did you find that compared to the, the ICU in Canada?
1: I loved it, mate. Like, do you know what? I actually look back at being on the ward with, like, fond memories, even though a lot of lads there are really ill, life-changing injuries. It was just like being in the barracks. Mm, um, back back know, to what you know. Yeah, I didn't know a lot of these lads before. Obviously, I was the only grenadier. At the time, 4-2 and 4-5 commando from the Royal Marines were in Afghan. So a lot of the ward was taken up with Royal Marines. But it, it was brilliant. Like We were in four-man rooms and everyone just had a that sort of squaddy mentality, mm-hmm. squaddy humour. I quite enjoyed it. All the things I remember are quite amusing, uh, apart from obviously <laughs> the days when you're in a lot of pain and yeah. stuff. But yeah, I I actually quite liked it, and it it was the perfect stepping stone to everything that I've ended up doing since because you're just surrounded by such positive people, yeah. and yeah, because everybody's sort of cracking on. I I was the one I was I was bluffing it. I I was only missing one leg, so I was <laughs> I was just bluffing my ticket. I, I wasn't even in. Um, you had a
0: sick note. <laughs> that's
1: it. Yeah. yeah I was, I was Biff bloke at the back on PT. just trying to get out of PT
0: for it for a week. You have it <laughs> sewn back on next week. <laughs> and and you'll find with with the military, you you always get well. You don't always, but the most majority of the time, you get that that banter. You get that the sense of humor that only the military will will get. If someone walked into your ward, that walked into the wrong ward, and went in a room full of people with missing legs, missing limbs, whatever, and they were all laughing. They, they, they'd think it was a bloody movie or something but yeah. it's, it's just just normal military life how long were you in Birmingham hospital
1: spent nine weeks there yeah I was by the sort of sunny window so nine weeks in the summer was horrendous like it took me about six weeks before I was well enough to get out of the bed in transfer into a wheelchair and go outside like I, I'd been in this hospital for so long and I, I didn't even know what it looked like and I was desperate. I was like, I just want some fresh air, but yeah, I spent, I spent nine weeks in total. And um,
0: did your, your wife and son, were they able to come up and visit you?
1: Yeah, the, the military are really good. So, uh, one of the forces charities, Safa, um, they have a, a house around the corner from the, the hospital Oh, good. Uh, house and all of the next to kids, not, not all of them, but a lot of the kids are staying in this, this big house with different rooms and, so my wife and son moved up there for the, the entire time that I was in hospital. Oh, wow, right. Yeah,
0: That's, yeah. that's really good of, of the military. And yeah, that, that's fantastic. So you were able to see them daily, I guess. Uh, that's brilliant. And that would have helped your, your, you know, your mindset and, you know, your confidence just to know that, you know, you can see your family whenever pretty much rather than them being all the way back in Milton Keynes or Purbright.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We never opted to have a married quarter, so... Yeah, that's shit. Settled in our <laughs> job and stuff. Like I just used to uh, sort of commute back from the barracks back to Milton Keynes. So, yeah, yeah they'd come up from Milton Keynes and, and stayed in Birmingham.
0: Yeah, so, so to know they're there, that that would have done wonders. What made you shift your mindset from being led in that hospital bed to becoming Mark Smith again?
1: So, I'd started to get to a point where the welfare team and that they they let you go a bit further afield the hospital restaurant and so on and I said I'd I'd love to like go out for sort of a bite to eat and that and so they arranged it I had all my vacuum pack and stuff in my little man bag attached <laughs> um and I'd had a picture with my son on my lap in the wheelchair in the car park outside and yeah when I when my wife had sort of shown me it, it was like wow like a, I look so weak feeble here I am I'm supposed to be an infantry soldier you know a a section commander a a dad a husband like a man of the house and look at the state of me and that that photo like when I I I sort of say you know when I get out of hospital like I'm never I'm never going to look like that again that sort of that stayed in that was my drive from the moment I obviously ended up getting to Headley Court
0: and for um you know, for viewers who are listening on on you know any of the streaming platforms, you 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 got down to was it sixty kilos? Yeah, yeah. yeah we so
1: ins um, Yeah, sixty-one was as light as I got. Sixty-one
0: um, kilos, which is compared to well, for me, for example, I'm one hundred and thirty kilos at the minute, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, so. This, that, that, that photo was kind of your inspiration to get to, to get to bigger and better things I guess and then you you, you went to Headley Court and what what was Headley Court like what what did you have to do there what was your day-to-day because I bet I bet being back in Headley Court was a bit more military yeah, yeah so, so you were almost back into a routine of getting told what time to wake up and all, all that stuff
1: be honest, like Headley, when you're in Birmingham, is like the promised land because that's where the prosthetic legs are and stuff. That's where the blokes who came back up to Birmingham looked a lot healthier. They look like they've been eating and they look well and they look taller. A lot of these lads I'd never met before their injuries, so I only knew them as wheelchair height. Yeah, and then obviously, you see lads at Headley um, with a bit of weight uh-huh. back on them and six foot four <laughs> It was like you know <laughs> this <laughs> yeah.
0: um could they choose what size they wanted to be if they had yeah. two taken enough <laughs> <up>?
1: yeah <laughs> but like I was surrounded by people that were just making progress every day and it was quite evident at Headley that you get out what you put in uh if you put the effort in you know you, you the rewards are there in terms of prosthetic legs and the things that you can do and I quite liked the the structure, like you said, about that sort of military routine. Mm. So you'd have your roll call in the morning, you'd do your PT, physio, prosthetics, occupational health, your your mental health sessions. And what I was doing was in my own time, you'd have breaks every other session, sort of half an hour or so. And in those breaks, I was heading down to the gym in my own time. And Is that to gain a bit of weight? Yeah, like the the day that I got to Headley. Where I'd been shot in the shoulder, I wasn't strong enough to use crutches yet. So I was still wheelchair bound. Uh. So from the day that I got there, it was like I need to start working on shoulder pressing and you know, sort of strengthening my leg and everything that I've still got, I can I need to get stronger. And I'd um I'd foolishly gone cold turkey off all my meds because <laughs> They, you know, they made all my food taste horrendous. Uh, yeah, I, I had a couple of nights of being like train spotting and climbing the walls. and, stuff
0: and <laughs> Climbing through the toilet. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I think I did at one point. But like, it was like, oh, I need to get rid of that metallic taste and stuff yeah. so I can start eating. And and then everything started to become progressive. Like I was putting on weight then because Hedley, Hedley Court, the food was amazing. Yeah, It wasn't like a normal barracks in that sense. And obviously the gym facilities that I had.
0: They'd mm, be second to none.
1: Yeah, so every every admission, each admission was sort of three weeks on, three weeks off. And every time I'd come home after that three weeks, I looked a little bit healthier and I was a little bit stronger and I could do a little bit more. And
0: so Headley Court was a great, great place for you.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it's hard not to be motivated when the bloke opposite you in the swimming pool has one arm left and he's doing you know limps quicker than you are you know yeah. rounded like it's infectious just yeah. how upbeat everyone is and obviously if there's days when you're you're in pain or having a low day there's always someone around who's having a similar experience or they're having a good day and can pick you up and yeah it that that was the foundations for 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 making you go on to have a successful life after the military
0: when you left Headley, was that the day you got discharged from, from the military? Yeah, yeah. So what was that like being, you said earlier, you were going to spend your whole life in, in the military. What was it like for you to have to leave oh, of something that wasn't of your decision or had you already come to terms with the fact that you were going to be leaving?
1: Yeah, I think with Headley, um, you get to a point where you've, exhausted all of the facilities and stuff you've got everything out of it you could possibly get and it's it's quite a good thing i suppose that you then get to a point when you almost feel like you don't need headley anymore but Mm -hmm. you you're stuck between i'm still a soldier but i'm never going to go back to my battalion but i'm not enough of a civilian that i don't have to keep coming back here it actually gets you into the mindset of i just want to cut the strings now and and be out because i know that i'm never going to go back to the grenadiers so I've, I've got everything i wanted to achieve yeah, out of, yeah. now i just go but but that day when you hand in your id card strange feeling obviously you know from the next day if you needed to go back to Headley, you, you will could, then yeah. need an escort that's, <laughs> that's yeah that was a strange feeling
0: yeah but, it, it's, de- it's definitely something that you know you'll you'll never you never forget your last day giving in your ID card. All right, you've probably got another free in, in your sock drawer, which you <laughs> you lost and you found over the years. But when, when you actually give it give it over, you are kind of like ah oh, shit. What do I do now? Then you went to Headley. When when did you? How long were you at Headley for? Because when you went to Headley, you couldn't walk. You were in a wheelchair, and you you couldn't even. Could you push yourself in the wheelchair because of your shoulder injury?
1: No, not, not particularly well.
0: So so you went to Headley, not, not being able to push yourself properly in a wheelchair. What did you do on your last... You, you did something incredible on your last day or last few days in Headley?
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd pestered for two years to let me get up on a running blade. And the reason they were hesitant about getting me up on a blade is because of the tourniquets being on for so long. The surgeons had to not only sort of take my leg, but all of the muscles that had died off as well had to be taken so i was only left with one of my quads uh, so they took my adductor muscles my hamstrings they're all gone part of my backside's gone so very little muscles in the leg to be able to use a running blade mm. but I'd, I'd pestered and pestered mm-hmm. and pestered. and i think i'd just worn them down so much that the last admission it was like you know we'll we'll get you up on a blade um and then, yeah, my last, my last day, I uh, completed 400 meters on the running track. Um, and it, for me it was like, I just want to go fast enough to have that out of breath feeling like walking. Yeah. I only ever went, uh, slow. So I'd never, I'd, I'd never done anything walk, uh, on a prosthetic that was quick enough to be out of breath. And it was like, I just want to experience that, that burning lung sensation of, <laughs> I just, I need to get it out of my system. Um, it's yeah or, or don't.
0: Which, which is funny because a lot of people they'd they'd be trying not to get that in that <laughs> yeah. position like me being one of them like my <laughs> last day in the army i probably stole loads of ham from the cookhouse or and i don't know just ate <laughs> too many sandwiches <laughs> but for, from going to how you arrived at headley court to pretty much running out of headley court on a blade i mean they must have tried to chase you down and get the blade back because they're quite expensive (laughs) i hear but that even even before this point your your story is inspirational to to so many because of you know the mindset you had because of what you achieved to get to to get to leaving headley court so once you left headley court what did you do and I, i don't mean immediately (laughs) because yeah. <laughs> I bet being in the army you might have done some 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 some, some dude shit but yeah. <laughs> you know from yeah. now going to really. what what did you do like did you have a, a career in mind
1: um to be honest I think that's the one thing I struggled with throughout Headley. some of the lads were quite quick to go actually you'd go for occupational therapy lessons every week and stuff and the occupational therapist would sit there and go here's a career book you know this might suit you this might and every time for that entire two years was like, I don't want to do any of those. And my only ever answer was I need to do something active, something that's a challenge, something physical. When it had come to me being discharged, I had a resettlement course. So where obviously the army mm. retrain you after the time that you've been in. And it's like, I need to pick something. So I did my personal trainers qualification. I thought that's, I, you know, I could work in a gym. So I, I did that. I got my, my PT qualification. Started working in banetines and yeah, within a couple of weeks, was like this is not for me. I know, like, I had this feeling like there's more to life than this. Like, I watching people
0: spotting people, basically.
1: Yeah, like yeah. When you're wiping down pubic hairs off treadmills after people (laughs) have been on it, (laughs) like, sorry
0: Sorry about that. (laughs) 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 Who am I kidding? I've never been on a
1: treadmill a day in my life. fucking them and leaving them on <laughs> the beard, beards. <laughs> yeah, I I was coming home and, and I was sort of like this is not what yeah. I imagined. I, I was just a bit lost. It's like this does not challenge me in any way. Like I yeah. need I need something to to get the fire in me and and worth yeah. getting out in the morning.
0: I mean, it sounds um, like up to this this point, it's very very much like once you left the army is like once you left school like you 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 left school that you, you you wanted to do something active you found something active but you, you we all remember being at school that you get the careers advisor and stuff and they're like what do you want to do and you're like oh I'm something active and if you didn't find the army back then and you went into personal training for example it would have it would have been a very different life but yeah. it would have been a shit life for you i guess it sounds like when you left the army it was like when you were leaving school so personal training was was rubbish and what was your your thoughts about what were you gonna do because you know um I suppose you 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 were still young you still had a young family and it's not always about financial it's about what do you want to do as a human being what what did what did you do next
1: yeah i'd I'd actually one of the only things I did do in the evenings at Headley court you know everyone's got their own bed space and stuff and lads are watching films and things like that. And and I found myself looking online for amputee bodybuilders and stuff like that. And lads kept popping up on screen from America, stood up on stage with a prosthetic leg. And it, you know, and it, it was one of them things that just wouldn't go away. And I, I sat down with my wife, I was on a three month probation at the gym. And as much as I enjoyed training in a gym, I hated working in one. And mm. And it was like, look, we're very fortunate that we've got the security of my pension. You know, that was already coming in every month. So can we afford for me to not work in the gym? Because I'd quite like to see if I can do this. Um, oh, bodybuilding. Yeah. I, I'd said to my wife, was like, I've seen these lads in America and stuff, and I've found a competition in Kent. It's in five months' time. I want to enter it. Um, <laughs> and. Yeah, so when I when I handed in my notice at the gym, and like you know what what's next, And I was like I'm going to be a bodybuilder. They probably looked me up and down and were like, well, I'm <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I, 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 But I quite like the look of doubt on their faces because that yeah. that's the same look a bit. when it was I'm going to join the army, you know, and that that fired me up and it gave me that spark back from that first morning of this is what I'm doing now. I I went I was in a an old spit and sawdust sort of gym in milk <laughs> where loads of sort of bodybuilders trained. And I was like, right, I'm gonna pluck up the courage so I'm gonna go up and Tom Oward, he'd completed sort of as high as you could get in amateur bodybuilding. And it's like, I'm gonna ask him if he'll help me. And, and I was he like said oh, no.
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like You imagine if he did say <laughs>
0: no there. Uh, uh like you just go back stum-
1: <laughs> And I, and I just sort of said, look, whatever you tell me to do eat, sleep, train, like, I'll do it, like, you know, he would sort of see me every week, you know, right, you need to change your diet like this, right, now we need to sort of work on your posing, and he would help me with a posing, and literally, he took a complete novice that knew nothing in, in terms of the detail of getting ready, even down to water loading and, you know, sodium loading, the week leading up, and yeah. all of that stuff, I, I didn't know any of that, and it was yeah. like, I'm a, I'm a blank page, like, you know, do with me what you will, <laughs> but, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 Thankfully yeah. he didn't do that in any other way but he, mate, he, he transformed my appearance and uh, I think the thing that I liked about bodybuilding is I'd had so many people look at me as an amputee, a disabled person and you get so many people telling you you're not going to, you, not gonna be, able to not gonna be able to do this, you're not going to be able to run, you're not going to be able to do this, you're not going to be able to do that, you're not going to be able to be a soldier anymore it was all pessimistic and it was like I've got the opportunity to step up on stage and show what I can do when I when I stand on that stage exposed uh basically you know you're stood there in a in a pair of pants you know a, a fake tan and stuff and I was there to be critiqued by people but not for my prosthetic leg but it's like yeah all of the, the rest of me you know here, yeah this is the effort that I've put in and and it was a way of sort of saying look how hard I've worked um and I needed to do that to close that chapter of the way that I did look in hospital in that wheelchair and in the in hospital bed and yeah how and, far and I've
0: come. You, you did go really far to be fair you competed in the UK but then you were also um, invited to compete in America yeah and um, you know that this is from a, a short time of doing the sport I guess
1: yeah, um, my my first competition in the one in Margate, I ended up winning, and through the sort of powers of social media, like the more positive side of it, the video of me up on stage had sort of caught the right set of eyes, and I had the head of the NPC, which is the biggest amateur federation um, in America, message me basically and sort of say, we you know we saw your video, like we'd love to have you in America, and I. I thought it was a piss take. Uh, I thought it was a bit of a up. Um, Some of
0: the know, boys back from the Grenadier Guards.
2: There
1: is no competition.
0: <laughs> Let's see how far we can take. Let's get them to the airport. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I But it was like, you know, this is if this is genuine. And obviously when we got talking, it was like, he's actually inviting me to, to Texas, to the Phil Heath Classic. And it was like, yeah, like... So I booked flights that night, booked a hotel, you know, booked all my sort of entry to the competition. I was like, right, I've got four months now. And obviously went back to the lads that were helping me. And it was like, I'm going to be competing in America. Like I need to, I need to sort of be of a level. And then, yeah, when I went out, I was a little bit disappointed the night before on the athlete registration. I was due to be on stage with five, five of us in total. And I was the only um disability class person that had turned up to compete and Uh, in all of this effort and and I found my wife really sort of deflated it's like you know I I wanted to test myself against you know the American lads were the ones I'd seen online the ones that had sort of inspired me to get into it and it's like you know I wanted to test myself against the, the best sort of amputees and disabled bodybuilders in the world and so you know, she she was sort of she put a positive spin on it. It was like you know, when you get up there, that stage is is yours, you know. And so then I was looking forward to it again. And I did the I did the prelims in the morning, and the person who had invited me out pulled me to one side and he's like, "Got a surprise for this evening. I, I think you're really gonna like it." And so I I went back to my hotel because the the awards part wasn't until the evening. She so didn't um,
0: even know what the surprise was.
1: No, I thought it'd be a bunch of flowers or something.
0: <laughs> Could have been a bucket <laughs> Harry, <man. laughs>
1: yeah, that, um, but yeah. But yeah, so I I went back to my hotel room for a couple of hours, and I was I was opposite the arena, and I mean the way they do things in America is just on another level. Like, yeah. This arena was a four and a half thousand seat a sellout, you know, for an amateur show, and it, it was just that that in itself. I was happy with the morning, so I went back for the evening we knew that the atmosphere was completely different for the evening because Phil Heath was going to be doing a guest pose. Ah, so cool. everyone, everyone was there f- to see Phil Heath. Um, and backstage, it was all everyone was talking about and everyone kept thinking I was Australian because they all think English people talk like Downton Abbey. <laughs> um yes. so like an alien bodybuilder. Like, <laughs> uh, and I'd done, I'd gone up and I'd, I had to stop for a second. I'd, I wanted something really English to walk out to. So I had Oasis playing and I couldn't hear it because they'd said I was a British veteran. I'd come from England and everyone stood up. Like I had a standing ovation and they were clapping and I couldn't hear the music wow. and I just stopped to soak it up. And I was like, this is, this is amazing. Yeah. And I did my routine. And then as I went to come off stage, the security guy said, Oh, can you, you wait there a sec? And it's like, oh, uh, they found something in my bag. <laughs> <laughs> that,
0: that, that's what the guards did. They put something in your bag. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah.
1: It's like, and all the negative things are going around in my head. And then all the lights go down. The This whole other s- stereo system comes on. And Phil Heath sort of comes through the crowd and comes on the stage. I was like, oh, mega, like, I'm literally stood next to the Jesus. stage. I'm going to get, like, front row seat. Does his guest routine. And... Yeah, the atmosphere is just electric. And um, Bob Chicharillo uh, was the MC and he, he'd interviewed him. Um, and then they they start talking, and they're like, you know, we, we've got someone very sort of special here. He's you know, he's come all the way from England. And I'm like, I'm here <laughs> from England. And it's like, oh, why don't we get him out on stage? And it's like, Oh, everyone like Mark Smith and the security guy was like, Go on, mate, on you go. Ooh. And I was like, Oh wow, <laughs> like <that'd be> top <laughs> I was like, I'm really thirsty. And I'd walked out and <laughs> Phil Heath sort of spoke to me and he said, you fancy doing a pose down? I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh,
2: okay, yeah, fine. Um, and for anyone
0: who doesn't know bodybuilding, Phil Heath is the pretty much the best of the best. I mean, what is he, seven times Mr. Olympia? He's yeah. David Beckham, I suppose, of of bodybuilding.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah and you,
0: you got to pose alongside him. yeah. Did you beat him in the pose
1: <laughs> No, I I felt I felt like a little boy, mate. <laughs> i never felt. I I probably felt bigger laying in my hospital bed. <laughs> it, it was
0: Phil Heath was, looks back at that photo and thinks, "I don't ever want to be that small again." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was like
1: before and after. Yeah, um, yeah. When then when I went backstage, you know. All of these people were like, can I get my photo with you? And it was like, from that moment, everything changed because it went in Flex magazine. Yeah, it was everywhere. It was, it was everywhere. And I wasn't really sort of... I didn't really know much about social media then, really. And people like, backstage like, oh, you're trending or whatever. I was like, oh, <laughs> All right. I have no idea what that is. All I was thinking <laughs> then, there's a big chocolate cake in my hotel room now. <laughs> <laughs> And then yeah, my my phone just went mad. And when I flew back to England the next day, I got to uh, the airport at Houston, and they upgraded me to like first class. And wow, and yeah, I mean, I, I looked so out of place on that plane because I broke <laughs> like a little sort of window thing, like <laughs> a remote. Like I, it, it was so obvious I'd never gone first class before.
0: He's like Mr. Bean. <laughs> It
1: was mate, and then I, I landed back at Heathrow, turned my phone back on, and I had all these sponsorship offers. Um, wow! Opportunities to guest pose at Body Power and things like that, and it was like, God, you know, I've got a real opportunity. Here. And it, yeah, it was just that that minute on stage with Phil Heath changed my life as an amputee <laughs> into like wow. a, into positive.
0: And and then you you like you say you got invited. Yeah invited to loads of shows I mean you you did what nine shows yeah in your in, first year yeah which yeah. is pretty incredible considering people only do what two a year three a year maybe so you yeah did... as,
1: as I found out like nighting <laughs> for all that time <laughs> was, was hard going
0: so obviously you you did your nine shows in the first year and then you found strongman. What happened? What? Why did you go from bodybuilding to be to disabled strongman?
1: To be honest, i I'd, I'd done I'd done the UK Open uh, in Birmingham in the October, and I said that was the end of sort of about nine months straight of dieting, and I was I was just running on empty. That was like right. I haven't got a competition now to around March April time. I've got six months or so. I I'll have I'll have up until Christmas to sort of relax my diet and just enjoy my training and obviously you get that that rebound effect from sort of taking on carbohydrates and stuff again and <laughs> the first to sort of come back you know your energy levels your strength starts to pick back up and lads I was sort of training with were like you know your strength's like really sort of you know noticeably like improved and the the pessimist in me like you know with that sort of military background, no one ever actually praises you. Know, they just take the piss. So I yeah. was just were taking the piss <laughs> and being polite. And then, yeah, you know, over time, you're like I, I feel really good, and I I sort of felt like I'd exhausted. Every, it was never going to get better in bodybuilding than being mm. on stage with Bill Heath. You know no, that. No. that for me was the pinnacle. And it was like, if I stay in it now, what more? What more is there to do out of it? And then, yeah, obviously, Gary Clark, who we both know, who runs Britain's Strongest Disabled Man, had been following sort of my progress in bodybuilding and said, look, you know, we, we're we doing a an open day in Kent for, for people with disabilities to come and try Disabled Strongman. And I'd grown up watching World's Strongest Man at Christmas and I loved it. And I never, ever thought mm. I would get the opportunity to do those things. And I was like you know, I'll, I'll come down, but I nearly didn't go because Gary had said, because you're an above knee, you'll you'll be in the seated class, so you'll compete in a wheelchair. And throughout your time at Headley Court, they instill into you, up on a prosthetic, up on a prosthetic, yeah. like so a wheelchair was like a real backward step, and the bodybuilding I'd even gone on yeah. walking on a prosthetic, so I felt able-bodied in that sense, and was like, Oh, I don't want to be in a wheelchair. Um, so I, my wife was like, you know, go down and sort of see how you get on. You know, yeah, just try. Yeah. You, might, you might enjoy it. And so we'd, we'd done like a sled pull. We'd done a log press. And I'd got talking to people. And quite a few of them had, had been in the sport the year before. And so I was sort of picking their brains. And then it came to the Atlas Stones. And for me, they were... They they epitomized strongman. They were the iconic event for me. Yeah.
0: So he's the, the decider of who wins World Strongest Man. You know, yeah. you you just love looking at these these big balls and people <laughs> go, going going nuts with them, basically. And you know, that, that is the favorite event of many strongmen I know.
2: Yeah,
1: and you it's not something you see in a gym, you know, that's it's true strength, you know. Yeah. You know, when you're lifting a bar, you've, you've got closed grip, you know, even down to not being able to sort of have a grip of, you know, to have an open hand and it puts a whole different strain on your mm. forearm and stuff. And it was like, I really want to get my hands on the upper stones. <laughs> and the reigning world's strongest disabled man was there to, to give us tips. Uh, Lee Small, it was at the time. And i had been following him and watching all of his videos. So I really wanted to, like, impress him, really. And so the way obviously we do the stones is three foot oil barrels, either side of you yeah. in a wheelchair, take it from one side to the other. And I started with a 50 kilo. I threw this 50 across and I was like, oh, that felt all right. You know, do you want to try the 70? Oh, I'll give it a go. That went across about the 90. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm, yeah. Like why not? I'll, I'll have a go. And at the time that was the heaviest stone that had been done in disabled strongman, even at world level. And they said, Oh, you want to go heavier? Um, yeah, if I can. Like, and they had a hundred kilo atlas stone, and they said, "Are you sure you've never done this before?" I said, "No, no I've never touched a stone before." And the hundred went over. And Gary had said to me, "You know, we've got Britons in six weeks' time. Like, why don't you? Why don't you enter?" And I drove home, I had a big grin on my face, as I, I've touched atlas stones. Like, <laughs> it, it was like that. That for me it was like, I understand now the need to be in a wheelchair. Um, yeah yeah the whole whole stigma of the wheelchair had gone after that i i appreciated the the reason why i would have to be in a chair and i I phoned my wife on the way home and was like oh i've had such a good day like oh you know the bloke said i could enter britain's and stuff and was like i think i'm gonna do it and i quite liked the thought of i'll never have to diet again (laughs) (laughs) yeah
2: because
0: a strongman diet is essentially eat what you want (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah i thought i can embrace that lifestyle um so i yeah i contacted Gareth. Like, i'm gonna enter um but i had no no access to strongman equipment so i was like i'm just gonna eat big no yeah. no one in the gym i was in did strongman there was some powerlifters but no one that could really help in the way they did with bodybuilding so i didn't really have anyone's brains to pick or to buy into and It was like, I'll just train as heavy as I can, eat as much as I can and see how I get on.
0: So 2016, you entered your first Britain, your first competition, which was Britain's strongest disabled man. You know, did you go in it wanting to win or?
1: No, to be honest, um, we turned up and there were 23 of us. I think it's the biggest, the biggest Britons. That's that's
0: a big category.
1: Yeah, and... I was looking around, we were warming up, sort of they had some gym equipment and stuff, and and I I was watching different lads. It's like he, you know, he looks he looks pretty strong. If I sort of try and copy him and watch his techniques and stuff, and I thought if I can come away top ten, I'll be I'll be like over the moon. Um I know a lot of those lads have done it the year before, and it's like I'm just gonna use this as a learning curve, keep an open mind and just come away with stuff to work on
0: what was the the first event
1: so the first event was a truck pull and they'd done it because it was the first event we went alphabetical so i was one of the last to go and i I'd been watching the blokes um so obviously in the seated you're you're sat on the floor facing the truck 25 meters of rope harnessed up and it's just all biceps and back Mm -hmm. and i would watched some lads sort of lean back too far and struggle and so i'm just I'm gonna try it like him, you know. He he looked he looked like he was comfortable, sort of doing it. And and then, just as it got to S, it started pissing down. Um, so obviously the rope got a bit wet, a bit heavier. I was like, oh, it's, it's, I just sort of had a bit of a chuckle to myself. And they called out sort of me, and I went to sort of sit down and get in harnessed up. And my boys there they never came to any of my bodybuilding shows uh obviously their boring days it was all they wanted to see they just wanted to see me pull a truck and they was just to my right hand side and they were like come on daddy and they had they'd made this like sort of picture thing and at that point like that truck mm. could have been a plane like it it suddenly just felt weightless and i i sort of i could hear them i i shut everything else out and I could just hear my two boys and I just put my head down, lean forward and just, I thought if I don't look at the truck, like I'll just, I'll just go until I hear the whistle. Um, and that technique seemed to work for me and I'd set a good time and there was two or three to go after. And I'm stood there and I'm watching them and, you know, obviously they, they didn't sort of beat the time. And it was like, suddenly I'm top of the leaderboard. And at that point, it was just I got lucky. Like you know, I'll be I'll come sort of crashing back down to earth, in the next yeah, season. yeah, um, the no rep
0: everything else for the whole competition. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I should have I should just leave now. Like, <laughs> and then yeah, to be fair, the the next one was a log press, and uh, obviously with a gunshot to my shoulder, it it did definitely affect me in strongman and I managed- Yeah, so they, they had
0: to take some of your shoulder out. You, you, some of your shoulder was gone, would not it? So it was, it's not just an injury, it's like, it's it's
1: gone. I <laughs> losing the use of the arm altogether. I think it's about a mill or two away from the nerve that controls the use of the arm. So yeah. I was close to losing the use of that. And so, yeah, I, I managed, I think, 13 reps on the log and it was like, I'm happy with that. You yeah. know, knew I was going to struggle. Then the next one was the Thor's hammer, which was even more painful. So then it was like, I'm um, sort of 7th or 8th, like yeah. a bit of a reality check. And then because the day was getting on, my wife was like, I need to get the boys back home. You know, they have just yeah. schooling. And so they left and then I went and did the Hercules hold. And I thought, I, I don't know anything about grip strength. I'm just going to close my eyes and... And I ended up setting a world record. Um, wow, four minutes and one second. Four minutes. I can't
0: do anything for four minutes.
1: <laughs> oh, I got, uh, the Hercules is, I think, the longest thing I've ever done. <laughs> um, and the thing was, because obviously the Thor's hammer hadn't gone very well, I knew there was lots of people to go after me. And it was like, I feel comfortable if I let go and someone beats this, I'll regret it. So I yeah. just held, held and held and held. And then, yeah, I think I won it by about two and a half minutes. And then that meant I got to go last on the car deadlift. So I knew how many reps the, the leader had. And I won that as well. Um, so then when it came to the stones, the last event, I just had to get all five up and I'd won Britain's strongest. And even at that point, even when I'd got all five stones up, when they call your names out in reverse order, it was like, I'll have worked the points out wrong. I'll be fourth, or fifth, or something, and they they called out third, second, and there's me stood there, and I, I get called out as as Britain's strongest. And
0: oh wow, yeah, so that, that that's that's absolutely incredible for you. First competing year as a strong man to become Britain's strongest disabled man is absolutely incredible. What what did your boys think when you told them that? Because I bet they they went away thinking like. Uh, you know, dad dad fucked it on the shoulder press, so
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah we're going you now, he's let us dad, he's embarrassed us. So. Yeah,
0: <laughs> never talked to that guy again. But what what do they what do they think when I bet they well, were they, well
1: proud They were in bed when I got home. Obviously, it was late by then and, and in the morning they had school and I, I got up and I was like, boys, and, and I had obviously the big Britons trophy. And I was like, I won. And they're like, I mean, to be fair, all they were interested in going into school was saying, my daddy pulled a truck. Well, they didn't care about the other events. Yeah. It was just, my daddy pulled a truck. And I felt the, the bodybuilding, they never really cared much for. And I, I, I don't blame them in that sense. Yeah. It, wasn't, it wasn't that impressive to them. Uh, whereas I felt like rather than being one of those ex-forces sort of forces lads that lives in the past, they're now proud of something I've done now. Um, and that meant a lot is that I'm not that, oh, you know, my dad used to be a soldier, but now he's, you know, he just sits at home feeling sorry for himself. It's like They could go into school and say, my dad's Britain's strongest disabled man. And it was like, I can make him proud now. And that, yeah, that really meant a lot to me that I think in the present that they'd witnessed.
2: Yeah.
0: And for them to see you to see your dad as as a disabled person is is different from every other man. However, your their dad is a disabled person, different from every other man, by being greater, by being more motivated, by having all of these sporting achievements, and now being the strongest, you know, one of the strongest men in Britain, um, disabled or not disabled, because it's still still strongman at the end of the day so you, you you did um you did quite successful in your strongman career you did 16 and 17 you were both britain's strongest disabled man you were england's strongest man in 2018 and you also went to the Arnold classic and won the strongman there twice which is you know pretty pretty incredible because the Arnold is always something everyone wants to do well at you know you, you could win the worlds but if you win arnold's that's just the golden ticket really so out of all of your your man career what was what was the highlight um me dave is what you were meant to say mate yeah, i've been yeah, building even... this picture up for <laughs> ages <laughs> to
1: be fair like probably the first arnold's because everyone knew what the Arnold classic was mm. and to be invited to compete amongst the best in the world. And we'd gone out of a really good group of blokes, a good group of Brits. And then when we got out to America and we mingled with the Americans and it was like three or four days before the competition of going out for meals and drinks and stuff like, it was just a, the whole experience was in so enjoyable. And the day before the competition, we're walking around, all of these stands and and we we got seats to be able to watch you know the Arnold strongman classic you Brian Shaws and Happy Bjornsson's Bjornsons and it's like tomorrow it's our turn and the whole the whole thing was just exciting that's probably the most I've enjoyed a competition yeah that first that first Arnold because it was just I had to pinch myself even even if I hadn't won it it was like I'm at the Arnold's Yeah, and obviously we'd we'd seen Arnold Schwarzenegger and mikhail shivlikov had come and pulled a chair up to watch us and oh wow yeah um you know bill kazmaier he liked
0: one of my videos the other day just saying
1: yeah yeah (laughs) we're tight
0: mate we're tight
1: (laughs) (laughs) but it you know you're like yeah all of these people like i've got a real opportunity here to make a positive name for myself
0: yeah and he certainly did
1: (laughs) yeah and it it just and not only that but be Coming from the Grenadiers, um, they'd been sort of very supportive of me and stuff. And to have all of the lads from Battalion sort of like, Marks won the Arnold's. Like, it, Every everybody knew what the Arnold's was. And I think that's yeah. the one that really, out of all the competitions, winning it the first time was the most surreal.
0: You obviously went on to, to win it twice. And then in 2018, you walked away from strongman but you walked away you wanted to get your passion back which you always had from from being like you said seven years old you you wanted to play football again amputee football is saying simple there's there's one, there's one main difference I mean what is it
1: <laughs> so we play we play seven aside and the goalkeepers will be an arm amputee so oh wow I
0: did not know that
1: yeah, all oh, so.
2: in an arm. Um, I always
0: thought they just had the hand behind the back like they no. did in football. <laughs> and I, I, I kind of thought, like, I, I could go play football with Mark and be the goalkeeper, but, you know, I can't walk, <laughs> but... <laughs> yeah, <just sit> <laughs> yeah, yeah, as long as the, the, the goalpost is in reaching distance, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, so set, set seven aside with, with, the, yeah. uh, with the goalkeeper being an amputee arm... Um, person
1: and then yeah the six outfield players are all a single leg amputee and you don't wear your prosthetic leg and you're on crutches so you're not allowed to use the crutches to to handle the ball obviously that that, would, that uh, they can't yeah. have an extension of the arm so that would be handball and you're also not allowed to use your, your amputated leg to control the ball in any way
0: oh so you're not allowed to touch it with with your amputated yeah. leg even even because obviously your leg is um you can't yeah, but someone who has a under the knee amputee, I guess they're not even allowed to touch it. No. I, I, I yeah. suppose that makes it fair with the amount of legs on the field.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah, the only other difference, um, rather than obviously throw-ins, we kick the ball back into play. And well, yeah, yeah, because you've got your hands full. Yeah, full. Your hand. So yeah, that but that the very first time I played was a real I opener know because people might. Expect people on crutches to maybe take it easy. And I would argue that amputee football is probably more physical than mainstream football. You quickly realize that
2: <laughs> they're
1: much for their own safety, so that the tackles are full on. Like there's so much commitment. And I think, biggest eye opener, crutches at Headley Court were a stepping stone to getting on a prosthetic. So you spent very little time on them and you never mm. really did any day to day work on. On a set of crutches, he never built up any pace or anything, so they would just, if you get up in the night for a piss, like, you use your crutches rather than putting your leg on. That was it. Some of these lads, people running would struggle to keep up. They were so, I I was just in awe the first time I played. I couldn't believe people could do the things they were doing on a set of crutches. You know, and and I'd argue that several of the lads in the league, had they not been missing a leg, could easily have been professional footballers. They're some of the standard of these lads is is phenomenal. So we have eight, eight professional teams, Manchester City, Everton, Arsenal, Newcastle United, Portsmouth, Brighton. So that in itself, to, to be a young boy that dreamt of being a professional <laughs> footballer and then around 13, 14, you accept that's not going to happen. All of these years later, even after missing a leg, to get the opportunity to play for and against these teams at their their sort of training grounds and stuff like that is is similar to obviously you know that first experience of the arnold's and having to pinch yourself and it's like you know people sort of saying oh you know what you got on this weekend oh we're playing we're playing arsenal on sunday you know it's just i've never (laughs) really sort of um fully soaked that up yeah Uh,
0: yeah, and I suppose it takes you back to your childhood dream that, that you know, you you wanted to play football, that you you thought when you were thirteen you'd never, you know, you'd never be 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 good enough for. But you know, it, it shows that with with hard work and dedication. To anything you, you can get there what what did your um family so what what did you, your wife and the boys say when you know you you wanted to go play amputee football were they like oh, i never never sport dad
2: <laughs> you know
0: what 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 did they what did they
1: say think to be fair i think it was a relief like it it came off the back of hopefully what was the sort of lowest point i'll have so strong man from sort of the, the lad I'd spoken about um that had clamped off my artery and whose hand had gone essentially inside the exit wound I hadn't served with him before he was from the Royal Welsh um but obviously he'd he'd saved my life so we we became really really close after that obviously I owed I owed that man my life as well as the others but I just seemed to have a bit of a bond with him and then we we'd stayed in touch he was he was from Wales and we'd sort of talk on the phone. He'd, he'd come to Milton Keynes and stuff. And he was medically discharged uh, not long after myself with, with post-traumatic stress. And as it had turned out, he had treated five lads before me in Iraq and Afghan who had all ended up sort of passing away from their injuries. And I was the first lad he'd treated that had lived. And oh, I think okay, it's wow. learned a lot of things for him. Yeah, two weeks after I won my first Britons, um, he, he took his own life and that that really i i rather than processing it i used it as fuel to uh, sort of try and do try and do him justice and and sort of really throw myself into strongman in his memory and and do him proud so i never really sort of dealt with it and i just i thought i'll use this as my fuel you know i'll I'll make him as proud as i can and, and his family and we'd we'd become sort of friends with his his mum and dad and his sister and I just wanted to do whatever I could to sort of prove that I was worth saving that day. Um but it it always sort of that became my fuel to get fired up for each event. And I was finding it harder and harder to come down uh, you know after that adrenaline rush and, and letting out that channeling that aggression and that had sort of been bubbling away in the background. And then I'd had an operation in 2017 that had it worked, would have taken all the sort of sensation and pain in my leg away. But unfortunately it it did the opposite and it it made walking almost unbearable uh, on my sciatic nerve. Um, And then to top that off, obviously where I'd really sort of thrown myself into living like a strongman, I'd piled on a lot of weight and felt great when it came to competing and the events, but day-to-day life, like I could barely take two steps on a prosthetic without being in absolute agony. Um yeah. so yeah, I was now finding myself pretty much wheelchair bound and my my garage was where I'd converted it. So I had all my stones, logs, deadlifting bars, I had everything out there to cover every event. And I was finding I was going out there where I was, I'd stopped having a social life because it was like, well, I've got training tomorrow. Like i my life became obsessed with trying to win the worlds. Um I felt like a failure because although I'd won the Arnolds, I hadn't won the worlds. So I'd shut everyone off. I'd I'd sort of just gone into myself and I'd go out to my garage and just sit. And you know, I'd I'd find myself sort of talking to Spence and stuff and and I, I, every time I'd go out in the car, there this the same thought of because I was, it wasn't that I didn't want to be here I just wanted the pain to stop. Um, and every day I would sort of contemplate just sort of plowing the car into a wall sort of thing. And it was apparent that strongman wasn't necessarily helping that um, I was. I'd become sort of a bit of a recluse. And obviously, a, again, the, the weight, as much as it was an aid in strongman, it was a hindrance in everyday life for two, maybe three competitions a year. And so I sat with my wife and admitted, you know, for the first time, like, I I, I don't want to be here anymore. Um, and we we sat down and I'd started the ball rolling with counselling, the the regiment were really good at sort of funding that and getting that set up for me. And I had like a list of things that, things that were sort of getting me down and and negatives and things that I used to enjoy, things I missed and things I still wanted to achieve. And the big thing that sort of kept coming up was I really missed being a part of something, a part of a team. You know, I was always one of them sort of out drinking and stuff in battalion and socialising and, I'd lost all of that in strongman, um, and obviously, like I said, growing up playing football, I'd always been part of a team. And it's like as much as I was able to say, I'd made a success of bodybuilding and strongman. I hated being on my own all the time, and I, I, think being in my own thoughts was probably the worst thing for me. And I said, I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to play football again. I'd love to be a part of the changing room. And in in strongman, if you you don't perform on the day you only let yourself down whereas I quite liked the pressure of not wanting to let your teammates down and stuff and so I I started um I started losing the weight that was obviously a big part of man and over time walking got easier and then I sort of was light enough to get on a pair of crutches which I'd got too heavy for um and then I'd, I'd finally got to a point where I was like I'd like to give amputee football a go. That's how I ended up in football.
0: So so I bet when 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 your wife Natalie when you were like I'm ready for amputee football that that's when it it kind of meant that your your mindset had changed to being ready to to move on I guess because you were ready to to join that sport and be a part of a team again and then it could only do wonders i guess for your for your mental health
1: yeah 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 i, I the, the counseling uh, the first few weeks i i was reluctant to sort of open up and then mm. something that the ladies like little sweet old lady i used to sit in her conservatory and talk to her for an hour a week and just something she'd said had, had clicked and everything started to fall into place and I, then i bought into the counseling and that's when i started to make progress and I could tick that box off and then losing the weight meant that I could then tick off walking was getting a bit more comfortable and everything rather than snowballing in the wrong direction started to get better and it was like right now I've I feel like I've processed losing Spence and things like that I feel like I can walk to my children's school on my prosthetic to pick them up which I hadn't I hadn't been able to do for so long now the next thing is is now moving on. Um, yeah. yeah. That's when obviously the football sort of came in.
0: So so I guess that for you to be playing football again, it means, again, family aside, it means everything to you. I mean, is, is that what kind of you look forward to? I know at the minute you're chomping at the bit to try and get back on the pitch because in the UK we've had a, a major lockdown, which meant bloody kicking the ball against your garage for, for, for training, but are you, are you really looking forward to getting back out there?
1: Yeah. I I think in hindsight, I, I've i been very lucky to do the things that I've done, but I almost wish I'd got into it sooner because I, I, I love, I love being on a pitch and I think I can still remember the last time I played in battalion with two legs and it was the Manchester cup in Wellington barracks and, had I known that that would be the last time I'd ever play able-bodied football, I don't think I'd have ever stopped, but Mm. because I remember it so vividly, I didn't know that day that that would be the last time I'd play.
0: No, of course not.
1: Now, now every time I step on the pitch, whether it's for training or, you know, a, a league game, I always treat every single second that I'm on the pitch, like it will be the last time I ever get to play. So it feels like a bonus. And it's almost because of playing at the level that I'm playing at against the teams I'm playing against, it's actually now made me see my amputation as a positive. I'm I'm almost living out a dream. It's it's not how I dreamt of playing professional football, but
0: But you're still playing professional football.
1: Yeah you know? and it's it's um
0: and I think this is this is what I always try and get across there from from my own personal I, I used to compete in stable body strong man. Um, and now I just compete in disabled strongman. But for me, I don't really like people that much. So <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll be, you know, I'm I'm okay on my own, and I'm too fat to play any other sort of sport. But I'm I'm happy playing um playing strongman. But I think my uh what whenever I do a blog or something at the end of it, I always say. I used to do standing strongman. I still do. I do seated strongman. I still do strongman. And this this is what it is for you now. As a kid, you used to play football. Now you play professional football. It might be amputee, but it's still, it's still football.
2: Yeah,
0: it's yeah. absolutely um, incredible. And you play for West Brom at the minute. Yeah. Are they are they a good team or?
1: Yeah, I I mean one of the things that appealed to me, I'd spent the last two seasons with, with Peterborough and playing against West Brom. I, I love being around, like in, like, like I said, like obviously in hospital and at Headley court, everyone was just infectiously positive And I thrive off of that. And that was the feeling I got playing against West Brom, a real sort of collective unit, the managers full of enthusiasm, really, really positive. And it's like, Playing against them, it was almost like I want a bit of that. Like I, I want to be yeah. involved. What they've got, like I, I admire. So yeah, obviously I'd, I've joined them for this season, and it hasn't, it hasn't disappointed. I, you know, I, I've gone there with the ambition to win the league, um, and I think we all sort of share that ambition. And but on a personal level, I now I just want to play for as long as I can. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm playing with lads that were born after I joined the army. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> like I, Hi, granddad.
1: Yeah, I, I feel very sort of old when I play, but but then I sort of think what I sort of, what goes against me in age, hopefully my sort of life experiences and, and through football and stuff like that in the military, the, the self-confidence in, in leadership and taking responsibility and being able to talk with confidence they're the things that I'm finding the younger lads are a lot more reserved, a lot quieter. And although they're a lot quicker than I am on a set of crutches, hopefully I can help bring out their their self-confidence so I can have sort of leadership in that way of, of just the, the understanding of the game that I've got now, I wish I had when I was their age. Yeah, um, yeah.
0: I, I suppose it it all stems back to what we said at the start about the the mentorship of the sergeants in the, in the military and stuff is that you're taking you've taken back on that role as as a mentor to, to these younger uh, kids obviously in your life you've been through a lot with your amputation and your football career and even your strongman career if you could look back and give one piece of advice to somebody who was in your position when you were in the ICU ward in, in Canada, what could you say or what would you say to that person to make them know that it's not all doom and gloom, that you can get to your Mark Smith state of mind?
1: I think the main thing, I've I've had similar questions from, from people before that are due to have an amputation, And they're they're full of, obviously, concern. And I appreciate, obviously, going through the NHS is a much lonelier path as an amputee than it was for those of us in the military who went through it all together. But I've said to those people that, do you know what? Now, in Britain, there's so many sporting opportunities for an amputee or or anyone with a disability to excel. Mm. And it's just keep an open mind and, and be prepared to try everything and just find your niche. And, and I think once someone does there's something out there for everyone in terms of sport. And obviously I find it great. I find it, I find sport sort of therapeutic. And once those people find their niche and what they enjoy and their passion, you almost begin to see your amputation as a positive to, to do the things I've done if I'd done them as an able-bodied steel grenadier, if I'd gone to my company sergeant major and said, I need to disappear off every two and a half hours <laughs> to have a meal, and I need to go and pull a Bedford and a Land Rover this afternoon, like, I'd have been laughed out of his office. Whereas <laughs> that day was almost like the making of me. And I think it can be the same for anyone that that has a life-changing injury or or a, an illness that almost try and look for the positives in it and what you can get out of it. And I think most people will find that in sport.
0: Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. And I think everybody I've spoken to from a sporting background, disabled for, for, for life or disabled for a short period of time, they, they've always had the same mindset that you, you need to find something out there that is for you. But when, once you find it, you'll kind of be like, where's this been my whole life? and yeah. that's that's what you you've literally just said have amputee football so all the sporting things aside now you've you've taken time and you've wrote a book i mean i'm not, not being funny mark but is is there anything you can't do can you bake
2: do you
1: want to try
0: no no so so you you have you've, you've written a book um can you quickly tell us about about the book and also where 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 the funds of the book are going
1: it was something like people had said to me that i'd served with before we sort of meet up for a drink and stuff like you should put everything you've done into words and i always again that same mindset of thinking people are just being polite like i didn't i didn't really think it would have the interest that it's ended up having and equally like i didn't think i had the time obviously i've i've always i don't like sitting still so i'm always i'm Mm -hmm. always busy be it down the gym at football taking the children to their sort of after-school stuff, like I've always got something on and then obviously we went into that first lockdown, the gyms closed, football stopped and it was like all my passions are gone and it was like I need something to focus on and it was like now's the perfect opportunity to, to put everything into words, I've got the time and I said like I I'd, I'd read autobiographies before like your Eddie Halls and ones like that and I liked how you get a sense of it's him telling you. And I said, like, if I'm going to do this, I want it in, in my words where people can relate to the things that I'm sort of saying and, and almost get a feel that it's me sort of writing it. So I I almost used it the similar to the counselling of i talked of everything from childhood, all the way through, just to give people an insight into why I've been as sort of driven as I have the last few years, you know, what makes me tick. And I so I put I put everything in there, which when I'd finished it and the reality sunk in that people can read this and buy this, I was really nervous about because there was things I'd put in there that lads I'd served with for years didn't even know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I said to my wife, like, we are very fortunate that my pension looks after us. You know, I haven't been found wanting for anything. The, the regiment have been great if it's been a medical need be it crutches wheelchair housing adaptations all that sort of stuff as those worries are taken away they, they they've helped and the counselling and so i didn't feel we needed to earn any money from it that wasn't why i was doing it <clears throat> like and i said i'd like to do it for charity and some friends of ours had, had lost their little boy who's the same age as my youngest now to to cancer Um, and in his memory set up a charity called Aidan's Funds and the charity takes Christmas presents, Easter eggs, Mm -hmm. parts and crafts packs, all stuff like that to the children that are on the wards you know and going through chemotherapy and things and just to make their time in hospital that little bit more bearable and it's just a small family run charity. So they're, they're heavily reliant on donations and fundraising events. And we've obviously last year, they never got to host their summer ball, their Christmas ball. So they had oh, of course, yeah, next to no income for the charity. And it was like, there seems to be a lot of interest in the book. Like people sort of messaging, you know, wanting it before it was even out. It was like, we could, we could, send all the proceeds to, to Aidan's funds and you know that would yeah that would really help them um, and make up for last year yeah and obviously I, I didn't I thought I'd be happy if I sell 100 copies or whatever you know I thought that'd be a lot but yeah it's, it's sort of far exceeded that and we've yeah. raised over £2,800 for the charity so far which having spoken to Aidan's parents we'll already see them through this year
0: oh wow um, incredible and that, that's that's amazing for you for you and your wife too, to to give in all of the proceeds to, to Aiden's funds, which is very honorable of you, and it's absolutely incredible of, of you guys to do that. So I hope the book goes really well if if people want to buy it. I know it's out on Amazon. Um is, is there any um word on doing an audio version? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, obviously, you, you know, dad, uh, like sort of blind, blind strong man dad. Um yeah. I, I was going to sort of just read him. He's one personally sort of sat by his bedside, but uh, <laughs> I'm not sure anyone wants to endure my voice for sort of 10, 12 hours or however long it is. Um, yeah. If anyone's
0: got a great voice and a great voiceover, get in touch with Mark and let's 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 see about getting Dan a version of this book
1: <laughs> if Mark <all> just <laughs> he's reading it. Like.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, because Dan is a legend of his own. So, Mark, obviously the the football starting again soon, which which you know you're looking forward to. We're all looking forward to, to seeing how you progress within the season. What what else is on the cards apart from football, or is it just just knocking out football for the next? 10 years
1: well this year in july is is 10 years since i lost my leg um so i wanted to i wanted to fill the whole year with different challenges um but obviously you know the way the world is at minute has sort of changed that a little bit so i'm i'm doing the 10 kilometer stage of the milton Keynes marathon in may on crutches and in sort of july august time i'm going to be climbing Snowdon on crutches as well so yeah, yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to sort of do something. I didn't want to do it on my prosthetic. I wanted to make it as hard as possible, um, to make the you know make the sort of memory as 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 sort of nice as possible. And and aside from that, I just want to play football for as long as I can. And, and
0: I mean, aside from that, for a start is is ridiculous because just doing those those two you know really small challenges is <laughs> is incredible. I mean. From from somebody who is sat around, like, I'm not talking about me, I am usually sat around, that's kind of what I do these days. <laughs> but, you know, if you're able-bodied, let Mark be your inspiration to getting you moving, to getting you, even if it's just getting a few steps in more, because, you know, Mark is massively pushing himself out of his comfort zone and climbing mountains on one leg and a couple of crutches, and you know is your wife doing it with
1: you yeah the whole the whole Ah. family's gonna do it It it'll be the first time the boys have done anything and I really wanted to sort of share that that feeling of seeing them reach the summit and yeah a few sort of grenadiers coming up as well and
0: oh so it's like a a proper event with guardsmen with your family I mean if your kids are anything like mine they're gonna moan like hell you know from from the (laughs) car park all the way up (laughs) And they'll I mean, get to the top and say, Is this it? <laughs>
1: I'm hoping the fact that there'll be other grenadiers there and they'll know that their soldiers might might stop them from moaning. <laughs> but I, I know it will I hope I hope it'll be worth it for them when they when they get to the top.
0: It definitely will be. And Mark, you're you're an inspiration to to me for for first of all. And that's that's the only one who, who overly matters because I might be the only one to, to watch this back, but you know, you're you you're an inspiration to me and so many others in, in all your sport and achievements. Selfishly, I, I'm I'm glad to have met you for a short period of time that, that I've that I've known you through through Strongman. So thanks for thanks for coming on to the show, for, for raising awareness for everything you've you spoken about and being so being so open. We we've spoke here about Mark dying. We spoke about Mark coming back to life and the changes that he's made to make himself the, the incredible human he is today. I really, really thank you for for coming on board, Mark. And I love you.
1: Oh mate, I I love you too, mate. Ah. The feeling the feelings mutual It's honestly, mate, I couldn't be I, I was a little bit be...
0: nervous then that you wouldn't say it back. Just like my wedding night again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> mate, honestly, like Of all of the, you know, there's a couple of lads that I can sort of take away from, you know, you asked me earlier, what's the sort of highlight in Strongman? And I think, you know, the fact that I've managed to make a couple of sort of really good friends and, you know, people like yourself, I was sort of in awe of when you came into the sport and watching you sort of deadlift and, you know, the fact that you'd done it able-bodied to a high level as well. And, you know, I... I was sort of in awe of you. There's a there's a certain aura that strong men give off, and <laughs> if I was to sort of describe, like, what is a strong man like? When I first met you, like, it was it was you, you know, big broad shoulders, big big honking beard, like <laughs> strong as anything. Like it just it smelled I think, like shit. <laughs> I was just sort of drawn to you, like we obviously your sort of sense of humor, and we got. Similar backgrounds and stuff, and yeah, I don't mean there's many people sort of prouder of how well you've done in the sport since. Obviously, I'd love to see, uh, I'd love to see you sort of take that Britain's tie, Earl, and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's uh, whenever yeah. I get the opportunity to sort of talk about you, I do, mate.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, like, likewise, mate, and you know, keep keep going and keep doing. Uh, I'm looking forward to watching you at football um From my binoculars behind the tree, uh, <laughs> in my raincoat,
1: <laughs> a yellow mat. Yeah, my
0: yellow mat. It's getting it's getting weird now. It's getting it's getting it's getting to the place we said it wouldn't get to. <laughs> yeah.
2: all right cheers, Mark. Nice nah, pleasure to speak to you, mate.